this is the conclusion of a novel in which the narrator is um, unreliable. Eaten human, eaten human at the face. Characters at the edges and on the edge. Remaining a perpetual possibility. Lonely, violent, deeply American lives. Only in a world of speculation. True ease in writing comes from art, not chance. Very fine is my Valentine. Very fine and very mine. Mm. You're listening to the Grand Podcast Abyss with John Pistelli. Great and puffed up with his retinue. Hi, everybody. You're listening to Grand Podcast Abyss. I'm your co-host, John Pistelli. And I'm Sam Worthington. I'm glad to be here. John, what does uh, Grand Podcast Abyss mean? So Grand Podcast Abyss comes from a name I've been using on the internet for about 10 years now, uh, which is Grand Hotel Abyss. Mm -hmm. And the origin of that phrase comes from... Well, you know, it's a long story. So (laughs) the origin of that phrase comes from the preface to a book written before World War I in German by a Hungarian philosopher named Georg Lukács. Some of our listeners may know Georg Lukács as a famous communist literary theorist, which was his... Um, that's where he gains his renown starting in the 1920s with his bold and revisionist, or I shouldn't say revisionist, that could get people killed, uh, his bold reimagining of Marxism in his book called History and Class Consciousness, after which he becomes a Marxist literary theorist known for theorizing the historical novel and the importance of realism as opposed to modernism, as he was the most prominent literary mind in the Eastern Bloc. However... Before World War II, he had not yet become a Marxist. Mm -hmm. He was interested in Kierkegaard, in Nietzsche, in in Kant, Hegel, proto-existentialist ideas. And the last work he wrote in that vein as a younger man was called The Theory of the Novel, in which he explains how literary genres are almost the embodiment of larger historical forces Mm. and how the epic is the proper literary form to an integrated society, such as that of ancient Greece, where um, all members of the society sort of understand their place in it. Mm. And the novel is the modern form of the epic in which we no longer understand our place, in which we are as he says, abandoned by God. So the Greek, the, the classical um, epics, the Greek epics, there's a level of stability, cohesion at the level of these works. That's we. That's been lost. That's his theory. This is, you know, German romanticism. I think it's probably false in, in large measure, but this was what he was thinking, um, whether he's getting it out of Hegel or, or whomever. But with modernity we'd no longer have this integral society because we have the alienations of modern capitalism, the, you know, the disenchantment of the world, as Max Weber says, and all of that. And so he says the novel is the epic of a world abandoned by God. 
Oh, that's so depressing. Yes, he thought so. And so he converts to Marxism after he writes this book. And later in his life, when the book is reprinted in the 50s or 60s, he writes a preface to it in which he essentially recants. He says that he doesn't any longer as a Marxist endorse the thesis of this book because it expresses what he calls romantic anti-capitalism, a mere emotional or, or aesthetic rejection of capitalism without a scientific sense of how we collectively transcend it, as he thought he had done as a, as a Marxist. And also in this preface— Hold on, just re- real quick. <laughs> he, he's a literary critic and a novelist, and his— Not a novelist, just a critic. Sorry, a, a literary critic— of of novels, and his main objection to romantic anti-capitalism um, is that it's not a scientific enough opposition to capitalism. But his own trade is is non-scientific and imaginative in nature. Where does he where does he get the authority to make those type of claims? Right. So scientific is probably a misleading word in this context because it implies some kind of empirical study, which isn't what he had in mind. Oh, yeah. Yeah. What he had in mind was not such such an Anglo-Saxon affair as empiricism. He had in mind the idea that as a Hegelian, he had grasped the logic of history, which Mm. is that it moves dialectically through the agency of human beings in, in the labor relation. Okay. And so socialism... Or communism, he thought, was the sort of logical outcome of this dialectical process. So he had come to believe— And you could make deductions that—and and you can derive logics which have a scientific exactness to them in that study of history. Yes. So, okay, okay. so the historical process is contingent, but the logic underlying it is not. And so he came to believe that the proper role of the novelist was— to portray this process in its totality. Mm. And that's why he hated modernism, because he looks at works by Kafka or Faulkner or Joyce, and he says, these works just portray um, abnormal individuals. Perverted interiority. Perverted interiority. And they don't portray this historical process in the way that Balzac did or that Thomas Mann does. And so that was his theory of realism, that the novel must be realist. Because it's specially positioned to act on that history or just observe and capture it? I think he was more on the observe and capture side. Yeah, I think he was... Observe and torture. Just capture. Just capture. To his credit, when he, um, during the Hungarian Revolution in the 50s, he did end up in prison for a while imprisoned by the communists, and he said that he took back what he said against Kafka, that he saw that Kafka was a realist. Well, he was enjoying some Kafka novels in prison. <laughs> no, he was experiencing the Kafka-esque in the flesh. <laughs> um, but I still haven't explained the title yet. So, <laughs> Also in this preface, he talks about the Frankfurt School, the Western Marxists, um, Adorno, Horkheimer, uh, I think particularly had Adorno in mind. And unlike today's American conservative intellectuals who believe that the Frankfurt School are the uh, 
orig- originators of uh, the left-wing radicalism of today, he thought, and to be fair, I think he was probably a little bit correct, that there was a conservatism to them, particularly to Adorno, who loved Kafka, who loved Beckett, who thought, <clears throat> who thought that art had to be rigorously negative so as not to reproduce the injustice of the damaged life of, of modern capitalist wow. society. And so he accuses Adorno and the Frankfurt School in that preface of living in what he calls Grand Hotel Abyss, where he says they, they, they live in this Grand Hotel. He must have been thinking of the sanatorium in the Magic Mountain, in which he appears as a character, uh, Leo Nafta, um, where they live in this Grand Hotel at the edge of an abyss, and the terrors of the abyss provide them part of their decadent pleasure he's referring to adorno um horkheimer maybe i don't i don't have the text in front of me or who else is he referring to um the frankfurt guys yeah the frankfurt school i think adorno is mainly who he had in mind so they just what do they do they just complain and then they eat the complain like 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 caviar like num 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 num. everything sucks yeah if you're familiar with adorno's work there is a sense of like highly aestheticized despair so a type of enjoyment of of um, injustice, inequity, and, and um, inefficiency of capitalism and its social ills. Yeah, a kind of um, beautifying your own disgust at that state of affairs, too. These are what the Frankfurt guys were doing. According to Lukács. And Lukács, what was his response to that? Like, that's... That's fucking bullshit, guys. Yeah, yeah. Get with the literally get with the program, which is hypocrites. Yeah, hypocrites. Not even they're not even leftists. No, no, they're bourgeois. So the the, the people that the contemporary leftists read today are not even leftists. In his view, no. Right. Um, <laughs> which brings us to why I adopted this moniker ten years ago. So he said Adorno, Horkheimer, and Marcusa. And all those guys are in the Grand uh, Hotel Abyss. Yeah. Yeah. They're only capable of an aesthetic objection to the condition they claim to oppose, even though they're secretly deriving a kind of glamour and enjoyment from their very uh, posture of, of, of ineffectual protest. So what has been your personal relation to that, that metaphor? I accepted it. Okay. <laughs> that was my response. Um, I, I took up this name... When I started on, so in 2011, Tumblr, which later became famous as the platform through which certain teenage mind viruses spread through the female population. But in 2011, Tumblr was uh, a platform that had a broader participation and a lot of writers were getting on it. And so I thought, oh, a lot of writers are getting on this, so I'll get on it too. And I chose Grand Hotel Abyss as my my handle, grandhotelabyss.tumblr.com. Because this was right around the time Occupy was failing. Um, It was right around the time that it was starting to become clear that the Arab Spring had failed. Uh, Through these two failures, it was clear that the promise of social media as a liberatory force was not going to come to pass. And I was in graduate school writing a dissertation defending modernism from such Marxist critics as Lukács mm. and his successors like Frederick Jameson and others. 
And I thought, well, essentially I, I took Adorno's own position, which was, and it, you know, whether Adorno's a leftist or not, I, I suspect not really, but the way I've heard it said is that you can't be a Marxist unless you believe there's a revolutionary subject, unless you believe there's some group in society that has the means, the motive, and the opportunity to bring capitalism to an end. And that was not the industrial working class, uh, as Marx had thought. It seemed like it wasn't the third world peasantry, as Mao had thought. Um, it seems clear to me now that this is more controversial, that it's not going to be the racialized minority communities of America whose freedom struggle has, for better and for worse, been, I think, pretty fully subsumed into capitalism. And so if there's not... Maybe, maybe it could be avant-garde poets. Right. That's obviously not true. <laughs> so, so what are you left with if you don't just want to... So you, you, don't, you don't want to be Lukács because you no longer think that there's the possibility of immunitizing this revolutionary dialectic. But if you don't also, you don't want to be you know, Ben Shapiro or whatever this... This American capitalism is the best of all possible worlds. I wouldn't mind being Ben Shapiro for a day. No, it has its appeal. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Just having everybody listen to you. Yeah, yeah. No, there's something in me Just that's... get a haircut every 10 days. ...drawn to Ben Shapiro. Um, but if you don't want to uncritically accept, you know, the status quo either. And so the Adornian position of, of calculated withdrawal and a kind of using the aesthetic as a repository for all that capitalism excludes whatever capitalism means in this formulation I, maybe if you're a marxist you if you're not a marxist you may have lost the right to say capitalism but um nevertheless um the adornian position the the life in the in the grand hotel abyss or the small studio apartment abyss in my case um actually seemed reasonable a defensible position at that time still um, still Still. Yeah. And so your relation or your stay, your your stay at the Grand Hotel Abyss, it's uh you checked in in, in twenty eleven? Yeah. And have you left? Have you taken some time out of it? Have you always been there? Is your how has your relation and your dwellings changed through time? And when you say it today, is there new ironies attached to the title? I think there are new ironies, especially in... So when I was writing my doctoral dissertation 10 years ago, I was working on British literature, Irish literature, wrestling with French and continental German. I wrestle with French people sometimes. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, slippery. Uh, uh, wrestling with continental literary theory, French and German. And so all of my intellectual energy was bent toward Europe. And then... You know, being an adjunct professor after getting my PhD in 2013, what I was asked to teach was courses in American literature, American culture, American popular culture. And so I became an Americanist almost by default. God wanted you to become an Americanist. Yes, just as God wanted my ancestors to come here. <laughs> uh, and I am a son of an immigrant. It's um, beautiful. And so... I think the all those European magic mountain connotations of the Grand Hotel have maybe 
become a little bit more ironized. I, I do understand that in America, the aesthetic has always been sort of an import um, because we were founded by Puritans in the North and commercialists in the South. We're an import culture. Yeah. So the aesthetic. Not if Emerson has anything to say about it. Yes, but he you, was... You crowned coddling Nabob? But he was quoting the German romantics. Uh, <laughs> um, I, I just feel that the the aesthetic has always partially come from, from somewhere else. It's come from Europe or from Africa or from... Or, yes, you know, yes. Um, and so, That's a good point. And we see it especially with music and history and mankind has reaped the rewards for that. Yeah. Us being a place of importation and experimentation. Yeah. With individual uh, reason and reflection placed like pri- uh, primarily, right um, in our intellectual production, cultural production. So when I became, you know, sort of against my own intention an Americanist, I didn't discard the European portion of my heritage, but uh, but I I would say I'm, I'm less interested in, you know, maybe maybe Walden Pond or whatever is the better better American metaphor for retreat, though I'm not a nature person, so. Uh, so like I said, it's more the, the studio apartment abyss, but but I still am not, you know, there's a lot of, if you read, you know, online disputes, particularly on the left, I, you alluded to this earlier, there's a lot of accusations, well, you're not really a leftist. And I'm not, I'm not really a leftist. I don't see a revolutionary subject. And so American... The American system is what we're left with working within that, is what we're left with. And so really, uh, art has to be the answer for now. The glacier knocks in the cupboard, the desert sighs in the bed, and a crack in the teacup opens a lane to the land of the dead. There on the sad height, curse Bless me now with your fierce tear. For you know only a heap of broken images. For you know only a heap of broken images. Because what else can you read or think or talk about in a place like this? Rage, rage against the dying of the light. I too awaited the expected guest. And here's the stunning thing that takes her a moment to understand. And all the clocks in the city began to whir and chime. Oh, let not time deceive you. You cannot conquer time. For you know only, for you know only, a heap of broken images. I remember I'll say this about I'll say this about you John. I remember every single interaction we've ever had because you've been a deep and meaningful teacher to me. And I suppose we met in the spring of uh 2018. John was uh teaching a, a American American Lit 1 so from from Winthrop to I think Melville, mm-hmm. right? Um, I had I had signed up for a class as an undergraduate at the University of Minnesota. I had signed up for a, 
class in, in post-structural criticism. So reading Derrida and uh, and attempting to dismantle the subject and dismantle edifices of like reason or like what do they do? I didn't take I didn't take the class, but that's right. Yeah, <laughs> decenter the subject. Decenter the subject. <laughs> unweave the text. Unweave the text. And at that time, I was I was a leftist. I was kind of you know I was identified with I liked Bernie and I cared about that stuff a lot. I thought there well I think I think there still is in many ways, but I thought there was possibilities of love and justice in that in those ideals and aims. And so I was interested in in um, understanding those. But in that class, I got uncomfortable. I got uncomfortable because I had I had a a deep love for. Um, I guess you could call it the canon, which was the object of sabotage in that post-structuralist cat class. I had a brother who was a English um, English major, and I grew up in that family. So I and I grew up around books, so I couldn't quite obliterate what felt so sturdy and nourishing to me, which was this canon I had only begun to experience and like only begun to let like alter me as a reader. And so it's funny, like that, I guess you could call it traditionalism, but um, that fidelity or enjoyment of, of a canon, like it's, it's funny to reflect on at, at that younger age, how that interacted with like revolutionary, like socialist attitudes or, and they had a way of interacting and, and, um, and um, counteracting actually. I've and, been there. Yeah. <laughs> And I don't think nothing about that time or since that time I, I I reflect on in vain. Like everything to me is is necessary, and and all the collisions were generate some sort of um, redemptive element to like understanding. And, and then, so I I didn't want to take the class, and the only other class that was open was Monday, Wednesday nights with John Pistelli, and I attended it, and it was I mean. We met each other there, and I was a loud mouth in class. And there were things I said in there that maybe I'll never be able to say again, right? Just because of aging out of them, or. But it was a precious time, and we read we read uh, Winthrop and and Ben Franklin and and um, and um, who else did we read? Um, Poe and Poe, <coughs> Emerson, Emerson, Margaret Fuller, Emily Margaret Dickinson, Fuller. Yeah. Frederick Douglass. Hawthorne. It was a beautiful survey class. It was an evening class, and it was. Uh, I I learned more in that class maybe than I had a couple of other great classes, but, and John was kind to me, and and um, that's how we know each other. And I've been able to read John's work, his fiction, um, over the years, and. And come to value him as an as an artist, already valued him as a teacher, and uh, really jumped at the opportunity to begin producing audio uh, because John's a prolific critic, online critic, critic, and uh, and um, anything that I can do to sort of bring out and deliver that knowledge and and um, in an enhanced and not enhanced, but more um, to diversify our portfolio. Right.
Did I ever tell you about my underworld experience? No. That's I, a that's a bone rattler. It is. That book. I read Underworld when I was 17. It was over a summer. So you must have been, so that must have been 98 or 99. Yeah, 99. It was the year after it came out. I got out of the library. And I don't know that I would have finished it. It was a bit over my head, except there was an incredibly violent storm that knocked out the power in my neighborhood for three days. And for three days, and these were summer days, I think I did like a part-time summer job, but for the most part, I had nothing to do but read Underworld by Candlelight. And I was so overwhelmed, this will get to what we're saying about experience among friends, that when I finished it, I don't know how many of our listeners have read it, but if you've read it, there's, there's a final word. There's a one-word finale. But before that, there's an extraordinary sentence that must be about 300 words long that leads up to that final word. And I was so overwhelmed that I called my friend, a completely unliterary person, <laughs> and insisted on reading it to him over the phone, even though I don't think it meant much you know, to him necessarily. But I was so taken with that sentence and the culmination of that novel that I'd been living with because there was nothing else to do for three days that I had to call someone and mm. tell, tell him. That's beautiful. I read that novel with uh, first summer back from college with two of my best friends. Unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Unbelievable <laughs> novel. But uh, everything is connected. Um, That's a refrain from the novel for everything. <laughs> people who haven't read it. Just it's the type of experience uh, that that's the type of experience that it'll make you believe in something, you know. Mm-hmm. And. But my brother brought, so he's like, yeah. So he brought, we would talk all the time, man, whatever. And he said, like he said one time, he was like, you read these novels, like you read Underworld, that change your personality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Change your personality. Mm-hmm. So I was like, that's, that's for real. Yeah. Like that's something worth something there. Right. About the form, about what artists do. It's like you read the novels, they change your personality. Yeah. Yeah. You start talking like the novelist. Right. You go out, you start talking like Nick Shea. Yeah. You 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 hear your you hear different cadences. Yeah, you're attuned to what the novel yeah. is attuned to in yeah. the in the visual world, in the audible world. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's absolutely true. Um I mean I will say, so there's a gap in, in Sam and I's age. I suppose I will say that as you get older, I don't know if this is generally true, but one of the things that's often experienced as one of the corruptions of academia is that English professors, you know, no longer love literature. And that's why they start assigning, you know, television shows and serial box tops to which they apply theories and things. Um, and there's a truth in that. There's a lot of corruption in that field. And I mean, like a spiritual corruption. But the more positive thing that happens is I think I, – I would say the older you get, the more you lose the capacity to be changed by a single work like that. And the more what you come to love is the whole thing of literature and how its parts interrelate. Does that make sense? Yep. 
Um, so I don't know if I could be as moved by a novel as I was moved by Underworld at 17. But when I think of it in the whole flow of American literature or the history of the novel, I still find that very moving. Do you, and I don't want to challenge your that that observation in any in any direct sense, but I'll just ask. <laughs> I'll just ask because I'm not I'm not seasoned and I've John has read so much and so I have no grounds on which to to act directly challenge it. But I'll ask like, do you think that belief? having it as verifiable as it is like do you think that ever forecloses the opportunity of like eruption yeah i worry about at, that at the, the level of like a yeah and i'm trying to think even as i was saying i was thinking are there counter examples because it's like know, the work of art that you read and it changes every work of art you've ever read like yeah that type of thing well i and, and you bring up a good point so i think the big difference is when i was 15, 16, 17, first reading Shakespeare, Faulkner, DeLillo, Melville, Toni Morrison. Uh, I was discovering Fitzgerald, Hemingway, Eliot, Keats, Milton, Ralph Ellison. Like I was discovering all these writers within the space of a year. And so it was as if every book I read blew the doors off in my mind. And it's that that I think wanes a little because you start to see enough repeating patterns that you're not going to be startled by novelty so much. However, every so often a book comes along and, and my most recent experience with this was this year, um, a novel I, I don't think you've read, um, The Sea, The Sea by Iris Murdoch. No. And when I read that, I thought, that's one of those books you read. People always say this in blurbs, like, I wanted to press this book into the hands of the next person I saw. And that's kind of dumb blurb speak. But I felt that with The Sea, The Sea. Or more particularly, I felt, why isn't this on everybody's top ten list? Why don't I hear about this book everywhere I go? Uh, because, you know, there's this received narrative that English fiction sort of falls off after Virginia Woolf or something. And Iris Murdoch was okay, and she was a high-minded lady, but sort of second rate. Mm -hmm. But then you read this book, and it does reconfigure. This this book is the, the culmination of the English novel. Um, Whoa. And it's even... The I, culmination of the English novel? Yeah, it's better. It's better. I, can I defend the statement I'm about to make? It's better than Virginia Woolf. It's better than D.H. Lawrence. Uh, it's an amazing novel, The Sea, The Sea by Iris Murdoch. What year was it written? 77 or 78. Wow. Yeah. And I did have that. 78? Yeah, I was Whoa. I was reading this, and I felt like I felt when I was reading Underworld. It was a revelation to me. Iris Murdoch. Iris Murdoch, she, a woman, British yeah. woman, British woman. It's in '78. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So there, I refute my own theory. <laughs> Iris Murdoch. Yeah. You know, I have a similar. Just what you're describing there. It's so funny. I have a similar type of. Uh, like phantasmagoric, like aesthetic, spiritual, ideological rearrangement. When I, when I experienced the work of another Murdoch, namely Rupert Murdoch, because <laughs> <laughs> when I when I binge watch Fox News, yes, it's the yes. it's like I've never. <laughs>
Is reader response still around? Did we talk? We talked about. I think you asked me that before, and I think I said it got swallowed up by fan studies, which I think is true. So reader response would be the all of the aggregate memories, personality traits, identities, experiences that someone brings to a text are valid in the interpretation of it. Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of... When I used to encounter it, and it was waning in influence even 20 years ago when I was in college, but what I encountered was almost like an empirical, like a qualitative empirical study, like professors would... Um, you know, convene like five students and they'd read a poem and and then they'd tell you about, you know, well, Robert came from a broken home and he interpreted it, you know, whatever. Which pool of recollection can be... Yeah. And I, I'm not into that. I, I think the... I think the meaning resides in part in the thing. I mean, or the most important part of the meaning is in the thing. I already know what my experiences were. Um, and so I don't just need this narcissistic mirror to validate my putative trauma. I'm interested in the otherness of the object. So that's what I think. What was the, <laughs> what was what the strongest claim in favor of the reader response? Well, there's probably a practical truth to it, which is that you do, um, you do bring your whole set of experiences to the text. So I shouldn't be so judgmental, but I will be. Well, I remember, I remember reading this. You know, reading this sonnet, I remember going to the grocery store at um, at 11 p.m. the 24-hour grocery store and being so inebriated that I that I dropped this gallon of milk and it exploded everywhere. Yeah. And can't you read that into this third line? Right. It's like the sort of sort of questions you'd get in your reader in grade school. Like, when did you have an experience that was like? the one in the story like who the fuck cares uh, that's well, what i thought john then. john 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 <laughs> come on come on man come on come on am i being too hard you're being, you're being uh you're sounding like uh one of them one of them uh austere formalists <laughs> and i'm not i'm not a formalist either because there's something in a great work that's not reducible to form. Now, there, that may be the two sides of a, of a coin, right? The reader response and the formalist, right? Right, yes. The formalist, like, I don't want to hear about your shit. Yeah. I don't want to hear about your stupid fucking ideas. I mean, you put a gun to my head, I take the formalist. You take the formalist. Yeah, but... But that, because <laughs> because it's about the object, because it, yeah. within the me- mechanics, to use the Hawth- Hawthornian... Is that a thing, Hawthornian? I don't know. Hawthornesque. Hawthorny. Hawthorny. I'm so Hawthorny. That might be a thing, though, man. Like, um, uh, fucking, um, ooh, what was I just saying? What was I talking about? <laughs>